What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Here's what's ahead this hour. The Nasdaq hitting a record high, topping 15,000. The S&P 500 nearing new highs as well. Looking for an entry point? We'll talk to a market watcher who's expecting a big taper tantrum for the markets. Yes, even though we've been talking about it so much already. Meanwhile, 10 years of Tim Cook at Apple. Many wondered how he could ever follow the legendary Steve Jobs. But he's done it so well, people are worried his replacement won't be able to measure up. Plus, back to work or back at home? Which is it? Jim's the casino's on the road to recovery, but we're still buying home office equipment and binging on Netflix. We'll dig into it in rapid fire. But first, let's start with these record highs. Dom just raced over here about eight seconds ago. Those aren't the only things people are buying, Kelly. You know what they're buying? They're buying stocks, too. They're not just buying just home improvement products or anything else. I mean, check out what's happening with the markets. She mentioned the record high levels that we're seeing overall. They are gains again for the S&P 500, the Dow and the Nasdaq Composite. Uh, Big cap technology stocks, communication services, and consumer discretionary have been the three best performing sectors on a one-week basis. They are helping to propel those markets to those fresh all-time highs. So the Nasdaq Composite and Focus, again, reassuming some leadership up by about half of 1%. So keep an eye on that particular trade there. Also, the recovery trade. Energy is sold off on Delta COVID variant concerns. This idea that the global economy might slow down, fuel consumption might start to ease a little bit. That led to a seven-day losing streak for oil prices, at least U.S. benchmark crude prices. Now look at WGI crude. It's up 9% in just two days' time. Now currently just about 3%, $67.54. The energy sector spider is up 1.5%, the best-performing sector, by the way, today. Oil services companies like Halliburton up 4.5%, and the oil majors like Chevron up 1.5% as well. By the way, every single stock in the energy sector is higher on the day, no surprise, given the move in oil prices. And then cybersecurity. If you haven't heard, it's a hot market right now. Between Colonial Pipeline, hack attacks, ransomware, you name it, it doesn't matter. Cyber is key for many companies out there, and it's big business. Check out Palo Alto Networks, better than expected earnings and sales. Better than expected outlook for the full year. Those shares up 19% right now in trading. And then CrowdStrike, cybersecurity as well. Why is it up 9%? Because it is going into the NASDAQ 100 index as of Thursday. It just goes to show, Kelly, how massive a deal it is for cybersecurity. These two companies headlining some of the big moves in stocks today. I'll send things back over to you. Wow, I didn't realize they were popping quite that much. Dom, thank you very much, Dom Chu. Well, stocks might be at all-time highs, but my next guest says the Fed will start tapering soon, and that will put a total halt to this rally. Joining me now is Barry Knapp. He's managing partner and director of research at Ironsides Macroeconomics. Barry, it's good to have you. I think this is the perfect time to have you because you're very focused on the mechanisms, the mechanics of markets, and not just these top-level calls. Why is it that you think the taper triggers a market reset? There's three channels that a taper or slowing of asset purchases works its way through the markets. The one that most economists, strategists, Fed policy participants focus on is the signaling or discounting effect. I think what if we hear anything from Chair Powell this week, it'll be about separating rate hikes from 
the actual taper process. They'll do everything they can to try and deliver a dovish taper. That's only one of the three channels. The other two that uh, rarely get discussed, the second one is a move higher in real rates. When you discount stocks, uh, you create an equity risk premium model, you use the real interest rate. Even last week, as Fed officials talked more about a potential sept, uh, taper, Steve Leisman reported that's a higher probability. He saw a spike higher in real rates in the front end. That's what happened in the taper tantrum, which was actually the smallest of the equity market corrections, but that, that we had two spikes in real rates in 18 and 19. Hmm. And then the third channel, the one that never gets discussed, Kelly, is the volatility channel. And that is because when the Fed buys mortgages, 100% of the net supply in this case, they suppress mortgage prepayment risk. They don't hedge it. The private sector does need to. And so it causes interest rate volatility to go up. That causes equity volatility to go up. Sure. And that's where sure. these risk-off shocks come from. So again, kind of the signaling issue, real rates issue, just volatility issue. We have all, all three of these things. And what do you say to those who go, no, it's priced in. The taper is priced in. The markets are shrugging it off. They are looking past it. They are, you know, why don't you, th why, what if it doesn't create a 10 to 15% correction? Well, I think with real rates, and you've heard people like my former colleague, uh, Rick Reeder, talk about real rates just being in the wrong place. They're incredibly low. So I doubt very few would argue with my point that when the Fed stops buying $120 billion a month, that real rates won't go up, right? That's primarily what they've been doing. And anyone who looks at interest rate volatility would have to acknowledge it's way below its long-term medium. I have it more than a standard deviation between its long-term medium, that will go up as well. So with those two factors so cheap, it's really difficult to argue that this whole thing is priced into the markets. You can argue all you want that we've talked about it and that means it's priced, right. but those two asset classes in particular, real interest rates and interest rate volatility are so far below their long-term means that it can't possibly be priced. So let me ask you a related but separate question then, which is putting all of that aside, is there a sense in which this market is telling us there will be no corrections or pullbacks? You know, does that phenomenon itself need to be explained if we look back over the past nine? This is a lot of the stuff that Brian Reynolds talks about, right? That there's so much liquidity. There's so many corporate buybacks. There's retail buying now that there's so much buying that it basically keeps us from having these mega dislocations. And so if, you're, if you've been waiting for this correction as an entry point, then you, the market just got 20% away from you. When you introduced me, you, you, I think it was characterized as a total stop in the rally. I would not characterize it that way. <laughs> These actually, you know, if you go back to the end of QE1, QE2, uh, Operation Twist, you know, that actual taper process, those were your best entry points other than the bottom of the cycle all the way through it. So what I did back in June, when I became convinced that this was imminent, was I cut risk, but not all risk. In particular, we cut back small caps, we cut back the materials sector, emerging markets, all the sectors that were gonna be most vulnerable to this kind of a risk off shock with the idea that you want some powder dry to be able to put money to work on this risk off shock. The eight episodes we had like this in the last financial crisis or, or in the last cycle, excuse me, generally lasted two months. And then the market rebounded and went on its merry way. So for me, that's the way to think about this. This isn't a, you know, get out of the market because catastrophe is coming with the Fed not buying any longer. I don't really believe those asset purchases 
have any real economic effect. And if they don't have much of an economic effect, other than to drive house prices up temporarily, they're not going to really impact impact the long-term outlook yeah. for earnings. Yeah. So you don't want to take all your money out of the market, but you just want to be cautious going into it. And maybe another reason to be cautious on home prices, you know, a reason that, we, that isn't typically talked about uh, the taper anyway. Barry, thank you. Uh, a bit of a school lesson, but also uh, with real uh, sort of obvious market implications. It's always great to see you. And thank you. Thank you. Barry Knapp with oh, Ironsides good. Macroeconomics. We just had a news alert in the bond uh, market. She said, two-year notes were up for auction. Sounds like some pretty strong demand despite everything we're discussing. Rick, how'd it go? Strong demand? Absolutely. I gave it an A as in Apple. We're talking 60 billion two-year notes. The Dutch auction yield, 0.242. 0.25. One quarter of 1% is when the one issued market where it was trading right at 1 Eastern. So lower yield, higher price. It priced very solid. And all the metrics just blew away 10 auction averages. I'll hit the highlights. When you look at 60.5 for indirects, that's that group we like to pay attention to. Foreigners that want to buy into our paper, that is the strongest percentage since June of 2004. And if we look at 18.3 on the dealer take, you know, basically it's like I said, it's like a buffet lunch. And the dealers get whatever's left over. And the smaller the amount the dealers get, the more aggressive the auction was. They took 18.3%. That's the smallest percentage since May of 2016. So A is an apple. Tomorrow will be 61 billion five-year notes, followed by seven-year notes to the tune of 62 billion. That's 183 billion in coupon supply. What we learned today is, is that the Delta variant, definitely in my opinion, put a stronger bid into the two-year note auction. We'll have to see if the longer maturities fare as well. But it really is a very sizable water cooler argument now as to whether the this particular strain is going to push things off the rails a little bit more than it has. Should we pay more attention to the University of Michigan or the markets? We'll have to wait and see. Kelly, back to you. You, Mish, versus the markets. That's a great way to frame uh, the next couple of weeks. Rick, thank you. Thank you very much. Let's get to Washington now. A trillion-dollar infrastructure bill is hanging in the balance. A vote expected shortly could determine the future of it. Let's bring in Eamon Javers now to explain the position. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is in, Eamon. Kelly, she's in a tough position, and we're getting a little bit more clarity on exactly how she's trying to wriggle her way through all of this, but not total clarity just now. Here's what we know. We're expecting around 2.15 this afternoon now a vote uh, in the House Rules Committee. That vote uh, will be moving a procedural process through in which the new language says that the House will consider the infrastructure bill on September 27th. That's that trillion-dollar bill that passed in the Senate. It's expected to pass overwhelmingly in the House as well, but progressives and Speaker Pelosi don't want to move forward on that until they've pushed forward this additional $3.5 trillion budget process. That's with a lot of spending related to what they're calling human infrastructure, as well as the physical infrastructure in the bill that's already passed. They're trying to use the bill that's already passed as leverage to get a vote on the other piece, which they consider bigger and in many ways more important. So the key here is that moderates in the Democratic Party objected to that. They want a vote on the hard infrastructure bill that's already passed as quickly as possible. The deal appears to be giving them this sort of date certain in September when they'll vote on the infrastructure bill. If they get that, will they vote for the budget process on the $3.5 trillion? That's how Pelosi is trying to uh, sort of move through this process in the next couple of hours. We'll see if that happens. The situation 
is very fluid, as they say, which means we don't really know what's going to happen, Kelly. Yeah. Eamon, do you recall a, 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 a recent case where a date was used like this? It seems like quite a novel approach. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I don't recall. I, I'm sure it's been done before, but I don't recall a specific case. And there was a debate that flared up in the past couple of hours about whether this was a date certain or a date uncertain. That is, would it be binding or would it not be binding? The initial language said it was the sense of Congress that this vote would happen on that date. That's not binding. That just means we think that it's possible that this might happen. The new language apparently now says that the Congress shall vote. That's more binding. Uh, so this has gone from a date uncertain to a date something like more certain, but not entirely certain. And that's where we are, certainly. And now we can go back over the grammatical meaning of shall, I think, while we figure out how, uh, right. how locked in this shall is. Shall is like one of the most important words in Washington. <laughs> yes, it's amazing. Exactly. Eamon, uh, I'm just going to try to make a play on how much we shall appreciate your reporting there. But thank you. Uh, it's good to see you this hour. Eamon Jabbers <laughs> you bet. in Washington. Coming up, Tim Cook celebrating 10 years at the top of Apple. And investors are celebrating, too. The stock up 1,000% during his tenure. What lessons can other leaders draw? Plus, if you've seen everything there is to watch on Netflix, don't worry. They're planning a huge fall lineup, but will it be good enough to get antsy viewers to keep binging? Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1 Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Today marks Tim Cook's 10-year anniversary as CEO of Apple, and the company has come a long way since he took the reins from Steve Jobs. Shares have surged more than 1,000%. Revenue has nearly tripled. Its market cap has climbed above $2 trillion. But with looming regulatory concerns and flagship iPhone sales slowing, where does Tim Cook take the company from here? Joining me now, Gene Munster is tech investment firm Loop Managing Partner, and Steve Kovac is CNBC.com technology editor, and it's great to have you both here. Gene, let me start by asking what sort of credit Tim Cook can take for this, because you could see a world in which Steve Jobs goes, look what a great job I did setting this up. This was a piece of cake. Or, you know, or everybody else goes, yeah, of course, it was Apple. It was the iPhone. You know, anyone could have done it. What has Tim Cook uniquely been able to do here? Well, I think that's a good starting point, too, is in my humble opinion, what he's done is become the world's greatest uh, CEO that, as you said, is part of his accomplishments, part of Steve Jobs. A, a, a thread here that often gets overlooked is one of Steve Jobs' greatest legacy is this handoff. It is the blueprint for all corporate handoffs. 
And I think that what he did so well, Steve, of course, laid the groundwork, but what Tim followed up on is maintaining a culture, which is incredible to go from 100 billion in revenue to what will be 400 billion next year. And that culture is focused, is, its singular focus has been unchanged, which is, in Apple's case, to create products that enrich people's lives. And so I think what is the, you know, the substance of what has Tim Cook done? He has uh, really uh, shepherded uh, this culture, which uh, 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 Tim Cook has done. He shepherded this culture that uh, Steve Cook built, and that is something that is incredibly difficult to do. To follow up on that, Gene, is what Tim Cook has created transferable? Uh, I think everything is transferable at a level of, of course, that was the, the narrative when Steve Jobs left is that this could not be transferable and here we are. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is. And I think that those conversations I'm sure are going on inside of Apple about how to lay that framework. And what's most important as Steve Jobs had with the, the focus of the products, there are of course other major areas that Apple can get into, which I'm sure are the discussion, the hot points for any future leader of Apple. Steve, we're watching the market cap approach nearly two and a half trillion dollars for Apple here. So the question isn't so much Tim Cook has done so well, how can he keep doing better? It's how big can this company literally get? Yeah, that's right. And two and a half trillion sounds like a lot now. And think of where they were 10 years ago when he took over is about a $340 billion company at the time. So that's just a massive growth and all because Tim Cook took the ball from Steve Jobs, who spearheaded the iPhone development, and he said, let's grow this into a booming business. To your question, Kelly, what happens after the iPhone? We know they're dabbling in cars, which has a huge addressable market for them. And we know we're dabbling, they're dabbling in this next era of computing, these glasses that you're going to wear on your face that, if you ask the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, are going to replace the iPhone one day. So they're preparing for that in a post-Tim Cook Apple. Great point. I mean, at some point, we all know the technology will move past this era that Apple has firmly uh, been the leader of. Gene, what would you say to investors who have watched the last 10 years and gone, all right, maybe I was in for that ride, maybe I wasn't. What do I do now? Is it Apple? To Steve's point, is it Facebook? Should I, should I stop worrying about Apple and get, you know, get focused on the metaverse and get an early there? Am I looking at crypto? You know, where, where do you make the next trillion dollars? Uh, you know, at Loop, this is something that we obsess about is trying to find those threads. And I think in Apple's case, one of the, the metrics we have is can you sleep well at night owning an investment? And I think investors should sleep well knowing they own Apple in part because of leadership and culture, but also what Steve had mentioned, those two areas that they're going to be getting into over the next decade are, I think, are fractionally reflected in the current market cap and have addressable markets massively bigger than the, the phone or the services business. And, uh, you know, just to put, uh, you know, a, a, a finer point on it is that there are only few companies that can really power that change, whether it's an auto or the metaverse. And Apple's one of them. And so my take is stay the course. I think that this company can be $200 or better in the next year plus, the stock can. And I think it's just going to keep moving higher. That's fascinating. Steve, any last words for those who uh, say, well, all right, I want to get in on the metaverse, though. <laughs> it, well, the metaverse is way far away, despite what you might hear from Facebook. It is, this is going to be 10, 15 years before we're actually in the metaverse. But Apple is really positioned to make that technology, to make that platform, just like they did the phone and all these layers were built on top of it. Billion dollar companies built on top of the iPhone. They're gonna make the next platform. So when that technology is ready, 
work that metaverse will exist on an Apple platform. So yeah, the future is bright. Yeah, evidently. That will be so interesting to see if $3 trillion is even the ceiling here for Apple or, or any of its trillion-dollar rivals. Steve Kovac, Gene Munster, thank you guys for joining us today. As you just heard from Gene, he thinks this is the greatest corporate handover of all time. Coming up, shares of Ford are higher today thanks to strong demand for their electric F-150. We'll have more on that and all the day's big movers. And if you're going to buy an electric vehicle, you need to see Brian Sullivan's EV road trip through California. Is the charging infrastructure good enough to support an influx of electric cars? That is still ahead on The Exchange. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get you a check on the markets right now. We've seen record highs for the Nasdaq. Look at it, over 15,000 today by a point at the moment. It's up 69. It's outperforming. It's up two, uh, two-fifths, she should say, of 1%. Meanwhile, the S&P is adding eight points right now. The Dow is up 75. Let's check on some of the individual movers. We have shares of Capri Holdings seeing a nice jump today after the company announced they will replace their CEO next year. The current CEO, John Idle, will become executive chairman. And Capri's been on a pretty good run this year. It's up 6% today and up 44% year to date. Ford is also moving higher after saying it'll double its production target for the F-150 Lightning, that's the EV, due to early strong demand. It was released earlier this year, already had 120,000 customer reservations, uh, and the shares today are up about 2.5%. And Robinhood is jumping as Rosenblatt puts a buy on the stock and a $55 price target. They've had a good month, up 38%, still 40% off the highs, trading right around 48 today. Uh, and also up 5.5%. Finally, Shopify is seeing a nice pop itself after announcing a new partnership with TikTok for in-app shopping. They're currently in pilot mode for merchants in the U.S. and the U.K. Shopify up 3.5%. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. We begin in California. The Calder Fire has now destroyed more than 630 buildings. It's burned more than 117,000 acres and remains only 9% contained. A 40-mile stretch of highway remains closed, and officials say it is unlikely to be reopened in the near future. President Biden has approved a major disaster declaration for the deadly flooding in Tennessee. The action frees up federal aid to help with recovery efforts. Fewer than 10 people still remain missing, but local authorities say that 22 people died in the flooding. And on the news, we'll go to Humphreys County for the latest on the search for the missing. That, of course, airs tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Greece is imposing weekly testing requirements for all workers who are not vaccinated against COVID-19. Unvaccinated people will also be banned from certain indoor venues. And Charlie Watts, the drummer of the Rolling Stones, has died. One of the greatest drummers of his generation. He also helped build the Stones' iconic sound. His publicist says that he died at a hospital in London surrounded by his family. Charlie Watts was 80 years old. Kelly, you're now up to date. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Meantime, a bullish call on gym rats, a reopening bed for the casinos, a work-from-home boost for Best Buy, all that and more coming up in today's Rapid Fire. We're back in a moment. 
Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for rapid fire, and we're drilling down on the divergence in the recovery. We've got four stocks to help illustrate this. And here to break down the headlines with me, Michael Santoli, Julia Borston, and Todd Gordon, founder of Inside Edge Capital Management and a CNBC contributor. Welcome, everybody. Let's start with Planet Fitness. This is supposed to be a recovery story. Morgan Stanley giving shares an overweight today, a $93 price target. That's 25% upside. They're saying any growth concerns would only just be a good entry point. Talking about recent data pointing to a return to in-person fitness and Planet Fitness. This is quite amazing. Planet Fitness memberships and usage are at about 90 percent of pre-COVID levels. Todd, Planet Fitness, gyms, I guess a quarter of them closed during the pandemic. Would this stock for you be a buy? Yeah, you know, it's pretty amazing, Kelly. And that's that 90 percent have returned up. To start, just look at the chart to begin with. Uh, If we look at Planet Fitness within the overall sector industry, uh, the recreation services, it's moved into uh, a position on a relative rotation where it's starting to outperform the S&P. It's interesting. Technically, we've been stuck below 85 for a long time, and a breakthrough would be very, very interesting. Uh, So I think the general consensus here is COVID is here to stay. I think we're going to have to live with it. I think people are realizing a healthier lifestyle is the key to fighting disease. Uh, I think people are also maybe dreading another winter inside. So maybe they're going to get out. Uh, they, they've been missing earning. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Kelly. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I'm just saying they have a history of missing earnings. But this was uh, this was a strong year over year growth. I think it's the first time since Q4 of 19 that they had a year over year growth. Uh, they're trading 47 times earnings. So a little bit of expensive, but uh, they have strong profit margins. Uh, and if they can break through that 85, I think maybe it's a go. Wow, 47 times earnings. Mike, here's my real question for you. Where are we on the reopening plays? We've had all summer long financials going sideways, energy down, airlines. Would, like, are we finally at a turning point? If so, why? And is Planet Fitness uh, representative of that? There's definitely been a reset lower. I think travel related in particular has, you know, airlines you mentioned, they're bouncing right now, but they've actually uh, struggled for months right now. Right since the beginning of June, I think, is when you had uh, a bit of a relapse in the investor psychology here. Now, are they ready to uh, kind of burst higher again? Is it really going to be an all-in type across-the-board reopening? That's a a really big question right now, and I don't think that there's a lot of confidence we can bet on that, again, even to the extent that things remain closed. Now, Planet Fitness... The issue here is it's not as if it's some depressed stock that's been neglected and everyone expects bad things from it. It is already expensive. It is trading higher than it ever did before COVID. And if you think 25 percent penetration of U.S. citizens having a gym membership right now is low, in other words, right. that's going to go a lot right. higher, uh, that's part of the uh, part of the bull case. It's hard to make that, uh, that point necessarily. Real quickly, Julia, where's L.A. on the reopening, broadly speaking? Yay or nay? Well, look... I mean, mean, here in Los Angeles, I'm a perfect example of someone who used to have a gym membership, not Planet Fitness. I canceled my gym membership. Now I have a Peloton. I am never going back Mm -hmm. to a gym. So at least that's how I feel right now. You know, I think as we see more signs of the, the rise of Delta, there is a lot of concern. And I think what's so interesting here is, yes, this is a, a company that's going to, you know, Planet Fitness is going to benefit from the fact that maybe some of the smaller gyms, the mom and pops, those will be permanently shut down. And maybe they're going to be able to benefit from the fact that people are going to want to go to a name brand that they know is going to be taking COVID precautions seriously. Mm-hmm. But I do think there are going to be a lot of people who will never go back to the gym. What's particularly interesting about Planet Fitness, though, is that in that more Stanley study, they found there wasn't a lot of overlap between Planet Fitness members and people who were interested in the high-priced 
home equipment. So maybe that's something that's protecting the company right now. Absolutely. Totally different market. So well said. All right. Here. So that was sort of the Planet Fitness story, which seems to be a positive for the reopening. And so, too, does this data out of Macau. In fact, a good sign for the whole global recovery. Macau is easing travel curbs for foreign visitors as China's recent COVID surge shows signs of slowing. Shares of casinos with Macau exposure are all surging today. But as you can see there, Las Vegas Sands, Win Melco, they're still negative over the past month. The more domestic casino names like MGM, Penn and Boyd have held up relatively better. So, Todd, kind of like I was saying to Mike a moment ago, are we seeing a reopening rotation? Does the Macau data to you signal a China rotation? Um, I would say no. And when I get through my, my spiel here, I'm going to say no, you need to be underinvested. But um, listen, Chinese stocks are uh, rallying based on clear regulatory outlook. They've had some strong earnings. Our travel restrictions, uh, forgive my pronunciation, in Guangdong province, which is a source of visitors to the Chinese casinos, uh, is strict. They must hold a, a negative COVID test. Uh, plus, the Macau government is testing their population aggressively. So when you look, though, you compare against the domestic gaming plays with digital offerings like DraftKings, Churchill Downs, Penn Gaming, uh, compared to those names with international exposure, uh, MGM, Wynn, Vegas Sands, you see a clear underperformance, again, on this rotation yeah. technical model that we like to follow. Um, and if you just take a look at the Hang Seng, like I think it's important to say, yes, okay, there's reopening, but look at the Hang Seng. Not only are we not above the 2018 high, we're not even above the 2007 high. So there's chronic wow. underperformance from an investment point of view. Don't get caught up in the story. The, the play is still here domestically. So that it's a nice story to talk about. But don't readjust. That's great, great perspective because, Mike, the other stock story today is Best Buy, which had strong earnings, strong numbers. This is seemingly a pandemic beneficiary, you know, people buying, you know, and upgrading a lot of electronics. So how do you juxtapose their strength with stuff like Macau opening or Planet Fitness getting a big upgrade today? I mean, is Best yeah. Buy just are all of these stories about category killers that the ones who survived during the pandemic now face a less competition? I definitely think to a degree. Best Buy, arguably, is a little more all-weather than, than purely a, a pandemic beneficiary. Yes, they, they, on the PC side of things, uh, they definitely benefited consumer electronics. But they're projecting ahead to, you know, 9 to 11 percent comp uh, store sales growth for this fiscal year, well ahead of what people expected. It seems like there's a little more sturdiness to the bid here, and probably because they are that category killer. The stock, always fascinating to me, always seems to have this overlay of skeptical or caution or people don't want to pay up for it. It's like, you know, 0.6 times revenue, uh, same as the Gap, same as Kohl's, you know, that kind of challenge chain store type valuation, whereas obviously performance-wise they're doing better. I think they should just change the name to Geek Squad or something and, you know, unlock a higher <laughs> multiple. Um, all right, finally, the ultimate stay-at-home stock is Netflix. It's going all out for the last four months of 2021, planning to release 42 films to close out the year. Shares are seeing their first down day after a seven straight session win streak. But this is the stock that's been flat or gone nowhere year to date, Julia, even going back to last year. Anecdotally, I hear people, you know, I wrote this thing about Amazon the other day and so many people say they love Amazon Prime Video and Netflix doesn't have anything. So, you know, is this gambit, this sort of flood of new content going to work? 
Well, look, Kelly, I think that Netflix has a lot of content and it's going to have a lot more content in the second half of this year than it did in the first half. Both analysts and the company itself said that one reason they didn't gain as many subscribers as many investors would have hoped in the first half of this year is that a lot of their content was delayed due to production delays. And that is one reason why we're seeing this backlog of content hit in the second half of the year. There are big name stars, they're big name content creators, and Netflix is really going to use these big names as they always do. Movies are always a good way to lure new subscribers. But just to tie it back into the pandemic, Netflix is seeing all this content now because of production delays due to the pandemic. If you look at the box office, there's also going to be a flood of content of really big movies that typically would be released in the summer. A lot of those summer movies have been moved to the fall at all. So Kelly, if you're looking for movies either in theaters or at home, you're going to have more options this fall than usual. Right. So even as they're amping up their offerings, they will still face more competition of all kinds. Todd, I'll give you a final word. What would you do with the stock here? Yeah, it's it's tough, Kelly. It's horribly range bound uh, since July of last year. It needs to get up through 600. Uh, as you guys mentioned, 42 films and some stats of the 2,300 titles, about a third of their own original content, 89 Oscar nominations, 15 awards. I feel like I'm in Hollywood. Uh, Ozark, which is one of the you know the most watched series, is coming back on Netflix. And I'm I'm going to name drop like I'm in Hollywood. My friend from high school just stayed with me. He owns a production company. His brother's the co-writer. He's from here from upstate. They're very excited about what's to come in Ozark. So watch that. The one thing I would say, they're venturing into gaming. I think it's kind of a doomed effort because uh, remember, you're going to power these games with the hardware uh, native on board in your TV where you know there's gamers now require a lot more. So they have a lot to prove both fundamentally and technically through 600 for me. You always bring, you know, I think last time we we're talking about horse racing. Now we're talking, now we're talking about the Ozarks. You got a lot of friends I mean, in high places. Do, why else do our careers unless you have fun with it? Like yeah. I know you do. <laughs> totally. Uh, I need more and You know, Kelly, I'm sorry. You know that horse got second. My, my Chad Brown horse got second. I don't think I got proper. Though. All right. I'm giving you props right now. That's the last, first and last time people should listen to your horse picks, baby. Mike Santoli, Julie Borson, Todd Gordon, we really appreciate uh, all you joining us for this edition of Rapid Fire. Up next, we're calling it the EV chicken or the egg problem. It's the necessary electric vehicle step that people have to take that could actually slow adoption of EVs on a broad scale. We'll explain that next on The Exchange. Welcome back. Automakers around the world are betting on electric vehicles, but there could be one big factor that would discourage drivers from buying EVs that aren't Teslas. CNBC's intrepid Brian Sullivan hit the road in California to explore. Everybody knows what a Tesla can do in their excellent supercharger network. But what about all the non-Tesla electric cars about to roll out? And what's it like to take a 500-mile road trip in one? Well, the only way to find out is to find out. I'm at a Walmart in Barstow, California, and uh, got 84% charge. Our first leg through the California desert, not a lot of charging stations out here. Went to an overnight stop in Bakersfield, California. It's very slow. It says we'll be charged 100% by 11.30 tomorrow morning, more than 12 hours from now. We. Uh, I woke to a nice surprise, the car was 89% charged. And now we begin the run to uh, San Francisco airport for a uh, 4 p.m. flight. So we're gonna take five just straight through the gut of California 
and there's a Del Taco in our future. Let's go. It's gonna be messy. The car's route planning software from Google, which has been pretty accurate the entire trip, shows we needed to stop twice, ugh, between here and San Francisco airport, or arrive at the airport with just a 5% charge, something we weren't willing to do. The first stop, and sadly it's not the Tesla supercharger. Look at that, they've got shade. So let's go find our charger. Here it is, yikes. It's hot, the sun is beating down here in Fireball, California. The only sit down restaurant, not looking so good. Our next leg, a lot better. Into the heart of Silicon Valley and goodbye range anxiety. Plenty of charging stations here in one of the capitals of electric cars. All right, so that was just part of our trip, Kelly, and uh, the piece is like seven minutes long. It's, it's also got a written piece. It's on CNBC.com. Just a couple things because there's people pinging me on Twitter and whatever. We didn't pick the car. It was what Enterprise gave to us, the Polestar 2, which is Volvo's brand. And everyone's like, why didn't you drive a Tesla? Because everybody's already done that in the Tesla. They know how good the Tesla network is, but Tesla's network is unique. There's a lot of other car companies that want to spend billions to get you and the Evans family to you know, pack all your 42 kids into a minivan that's electric and know that if you're driving to Lexington, Virginia, you're going to make it there maybe on one quick charge or have something to do. Uh <laughs> So I was kind of thinking through this, like, how would this work for a road trip? When I was growing up, my dad would not have stopped anywhere for 40 minutes for a charge. And the one took overnight. So, you know, I don't know if the infrastructure bill, I mean, what what changes this, Brian? I mean, Tesla says it's going to open up superchargers as a network. It feels like we're going to get to much better options, even in the next couple of years, one way or another. Yeah, and that's the, the key is knowing that, first off, there was no shortage of chargers. We were able to find chargers using PlugShare app, Electrify America, a couple things like that. In fact, we only ever saw one other car charging, an Audi e-tron in Barstow. That was it. You could see from when we pulled in, we were the only non-Tesla. The Teslas, by the way, the owners were outside talking to each other, laughing 15 <laughs> minutes and out. I was like, man, I wish I had a Tesla. And I'm not knocking the Polestar. It's a fast and fun car to drive. But when you're standing, you know, sitting, whatever, for 45 plus minutes, and by the way, it costs like 20 bucks. It wasn't free either with nothing to do. It's why I noted in the piece that the network will be there. But this is not, Kelly, everyone's making it about cars. It's not about cars. It's about real estate. This is a real estate opportunity. Yeah. The gas station on the corner, he's, my dad owned a gas station in California when I was a kid. They're not going to put in a charger because they're expensive and they eat up real estate. The future is going to be some place to go and something to do with your kids for 45 minutes. That's it. Check it out. The full piece on CNBC.com no, as well. I really appreciate it. it. I'm Thanks. thinking about, you know, fast food. Could you partner with McDonald's and put these in every McDonald's all over the country? Sheets. You know, something like that. Sheets. Sheets. Yes. Oh, my gosh. With all of the options The there. exit in Winchester, Virginia. It's the best exit one. Exit 318. Yes. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. No, but that's a test one for them. I know the Sheets family. That's a test one for them. <laughs> More of a sit-down restaurant rather than a quick trip. Check right. it out. They're Go Winchester, Virginia. We got to go. And rip Charlie Watts. I know.
I know. Brian, thank you very, very much. Brian Sullivan, like he said, uh, you can check out more of his piece online. And while the uh, autonomous and EV ETF drive has climbed nearly 70% over the past year, look at this. The charging stocks are getting hammered. EVGO is down 63% from its year high. ChargePoint is down 55%. Blink charging has dropped in nearly half. Still ahead, the Russell 2000 lagged the major averages during the second quarter after a huge pandemic rally. Up next, we'll dig into why some actively managed funds are closing the pandemic playbook and what that means for small caps. Stay with us. Welcome back. New data from Citi suggests that when it comes to stocks sitting at or near record highs, there's a divergence among some Wall Street fund managers. A scan of second quarter small and mid-cap holdings shows actively managed funds added a combo of pandemic and reopening plays and ditched many healthcare and biotech names. Meanwhile, hedge funds leaned more heavily into reopening beneficiaries and both appear to favor growth over value. Let's welcome in Scott Croner. He's managing director of small and mid-cap strategy at Citi Investment Research. Scott, this is a huge debate right now. Where do you think uh, it makes most sense for investors to put their money? Well, so 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 look at um, we have a positive outlook on U.S. small cap into the end of the year. Our, our target for the Russell 2000 is about 2,400, which is up eight nine percent from here. Um, and what specifically we're getting at here is that the bullish case for small cap increasingly is a function of where forward growth earnings expectations are going. So this is the earnings setup as we go into 2022. So where we're maniacally focused on this point is making sure we've got conviction in companies where there is that growth driver in the four or 12 to 18 months ahead. And that's what we're looking to differentiate around. All right. So that forward growth driver, as this research points out, hedge funds seem to have more conviction in the reopening trade, but also in some pandemic thematic plays, whereas some of the more mutual funds seem to be hedging their bets a little bit. And that kind of makes sense. I mean, in some ways, you are paying hedge funds to take big, risky bets and hopefully to deliver big. So should we be encouraged by the idea that they're kind of hoping that the reopening, that's that's the place to be? Yeah, I, th- I think that's the case, right? So when you look at you know, the use case for for small cap or the Russell 2500, let's say, by hedge funds, they're going to go down into our asset class for alpha purposes, right? And to accentuate conviction in a broader theme or trend. So in, in this case, we've seen them come down. We, we kind of call out the consumer discretionary area as an area where we believe they can differentiate. And again, I think it speaks to this ongoing and growing recognition that there's Um, a consumer spending wave that can continue for some time longer. So that's an important delta in terms of how we think about the hedge fund positioning. On the other hand, um, your traditional long-only mutual fund investors, they have to deal with a different dynamic. And in in this case, for small cap, it's been the issue with healthcare, where um, U.S. small cap healthcare has been lagging pretty significantly since the February timeframe. So again, there, no surprise to see them reduce exposure to those names, redeploy that into other what we deem more economically sensitive exposures, financials, industrials, energy materials. One final question on healthcare itself, actually, so I'm glad you brought it up. We were speaking uh, to Alethea Young the other day about the sort of divergence between a couple of the biotech ETFs that she said came down to the lack of M&A for a lot of small biotech companies because we've been so focused on the pandemic. But we just yesterday had Pfizer acquire Trillium. Is there maybe sort of a change in um, sort of behavior underway that could make healthcare catch up? Or do you think there are other dynamics that are, that are going to keep holding it back? 
This is great. So keep this in mind. Russell 2000, you've got 350 stocks that are categorized as either biotech or pharma, right? So essentially, what's going to drive the risk on allocation towards that sector? It's either going to be perception around the FDA approval process, or it's going to be the view that there is an M&A scenario that can play out. Obviously, not all the companies can be M&A, but um, the recognition that there's implicit value in these companies and their drug pipelines can can you know, drive some enthusiasm around that sector. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. One of the many places to watch. Scott, thanks for your time today. You bet. Anytime. Scott Cronert of City. Still ahead, Walmart is upping the ante in its fight against Amazon for your delivery dollars. The details of their new service next. Welcome back, everybody. Walmart is stepping up its delivery game, but it's not focused so much on getting its own goods to customers. Frank Holland is here with the details. Frank? Hey there, Kelly. Walmart's Go Local Delivery Service is targeting the $83 billion local and same-day delivery market. The retail giant launching that business today. The actual delivery is scheduled to begin before the end of 2021. And Walmart says we'll use gig workers, store associates, and even other delivery companies to make these business-to-consumer deliveries. This will also be a white-label service, meaning delivery will not be in Walmart-branded vehicles. The company says Go Local will also look to leverage investments in disruptive delivery tech. Walmart invested in autonomous vehicle company Cruise back in April. It also has partnerships with Ford Motor Company, Alphabet's Waymo, and Noro. In June, it invested in startup DroneUp and has plans to use drones and those AVs to make deliveries from Walmart's 4,700 stores. You mentioned AVs and drones. You know... We're invested in these disruptive technologies. Um, you know, we've, we've moved past, we're not experimenting in these spaces. We're truly trying to understand how do you scale this kind of technology? And following this news, a lot of investors are watching UPS, FedEx, and Amazon. But Bernstein says a large retailer doing local deliveries is a much different business than a national carrier. Kelly? It, it's fascinating, Frank, because I can see how well they could do this on one hand, but it's got very tough economics. A lot of delivery companies have been struggling with. Also, will their own brand name be involved? Because in some cases, that would be a huge attraction to customers. In other cases, it might turn them off. Well, the the real key here is, let's say we have, uh, you know, Kelly's dresses. The idea is that the delivery is coming directly from Kelly's dresses. But Walmart is just really providing the point A to the point B. However, they're also going to offer some of this service for people that are selling on Walmart.com as part of their fulfillment business. Okay, so in that case, they're actually going to look a little bit more like Amazon opening it up to some third parties. And that's interesting because as much as that's the only way that Amazon can be the everything store, it also means they don't have a lot of discretion over what the items are. And people get frustrated that they are looking for one kind of mouthwash and they get one that's a totally different size or they think they're getting a legit product and it turns out it's something that's a little bit off brand. Wouldn't it seem like a big risk for Walmart to kind of get into the same situation? Well, I mean, not necessarily, Kelly, and I don't want to get into too much of the legal uh, aspect of counterfeit goods and things, but it's very similar to what a UPS or a FedEx does. They simply take your box, they take your packages, and they move them from point A to point B, and they're not necessarily responsible for what's in those packages. Right, exactly. They're just the platform. And UPS and FedEx have figured out how to do it economically. It's up to Walmart to kind of meet that as well. Frank, thank you. We appreciate it, sir. Frank Holland. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.